Well, welcome to the Deeper Dive Podcast. Each week we take a deeper look at the text we covered in worship on Sunday. We do that by discussing things like historical settings, literary context, the way others before us have read the text, and our reflective approach to reading that same text. This podcast is part of Calvary's Daily Connection, so we hope you check that out through Calvary's app or by going to connectwithcalvary.org. Well, today on the podcast, we are talking about Genesis 3 and all kinds of crazy things that happen in and as a result of that text. Of that. So, yeah. Let's talk about sin and shirts. Sure. That'll be a fun day. Always a good time. <laughs> okay. Um, so I just want to start out with some kind of, eh, maybe not fun, but uh, little tidbits. Um, you know, um, and maybe this is just a duh thing. Maybe we all know this, but. Um, um, we talk about the forbidden fruit in other things, not just the fall, not just Genesis, um, but um, just even people that um, that aren't Christians and probably don't know where this comes from. We'll talk about the forbidden fruit, and often as it relates to relationships, shall I say. Um, and of course, this is, this is where that came from, uh, the fruit that was forbidden uh, for Adam and Eve to, Eve to eat. Um, the other interesting thing that I had never thought of before, and maybe it isn't even true, but uh, if the commentators say this, then it must be true. Um, <laughs> it's more than just on Facebook. Um, and that is that somewhere in history, we don't know where, I don't know where, uh, a story was started, and this seems a little ridiculous to me, but, you know, uh, that when Adam took the first bite of the quote-unquote apple, because we don't know what kind of fruit it was. It wasn't an apple necessarily, but, and tried to swallow it, uh, he, it stuck in his throat <laughs> because he felt so guilty. And ever since that, uh, ever since that time, uh, the, uh, that protrusion in a man's uh, throat uh, in his larynx is called the Adam's apple. Ding, 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 ding. I kind of want one of those... Uh, Drum roll things. Okay, you get a star for the day. Okay, is that good enough? Yeah. Can I move on now? Yeah. Okay, those were the fun things. Um, Now, when we look at sin, um, there were several Hebrew words for sin, um, and and I guess as as we translate those, we'll also see that we have several words that uh, describe what I think, what we would um, consider sin. Um, the one that we often think about is missing the mark. And how many times have we seen like a target um, as a um, as kind of a symbol of sin with an arrow not going into the bullseye, um, where we've missed the mark. And that's one translation. Um, the word that um, uh, for which that is translated is hata, uh, meaning to miss the mark or to fall short of the divine standard. The next one is, excuse me, is pesa, um, and usually means rebellion um, or transgression, and talks about uh, revolt against the standard. So, um, you know, one is is maybe we thought, eh, I can get by with this and not quite get to the bullseye, um, that kind of a sin. Uh, the other one is just out and out rebellion. 
Um, and then the third one is awan, um, and that is translated as iniquity or guilt. And that's a twisting of the standard or deviation from it. And interestingly, if you go to Psalm 51, um, it, it uses all three of them. Um, so that, I just thought that that was interesting. So go to Psalm 51, and, you know, um, now that we have this wonderful thing called the Internet, um, you can even um, find um, some translations that will tell you what those are, um, what words are translated as sin there. So that's just the little tidbits there. Well, it's an interesting tidbit, though, and it's a key, I think, to uh, um, us understanding this relationship mm-hmm. uh, is to uh, uh, understand, accept, not accept that God has certain standards for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing some reading, and folks who whose theological bent is in a different direction. I'm trying to understand them, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that uh, many believe that we don't live in sin, uh, many believe that there's a universal salvation for all, uh, many believe that uh, uh, God. That whole standards of God thing would be something that would stick in their crawl, um, and like it really the Adam's is, apple, huh? Like, yeah, like the Adam's apple. <laughs> uh, it, it's just an interesting part that one of the foundational truths of our Christian faith is that there was some measure, some act, something that caused us to break relationship with God, and then became the cause. Uh, for him to send Christ for redemption. Now, many of those who deny there is such a thing as sin to start with also deny the the need for a redemptive act. Um, so I just I uh, I'm, would they I'm, say that there is no sin, or that um, or that there is universal salvation. I have not done the reading on that that you have. I, I can't imagine anybody thinking that anything goes, that everything is okay. Well, again, I'm trying to be very careful in, because right. I'm coming from a pretty drastically different perspective. Sure. Um, and so I, that's one of the things. Um, some of the pieces I've read don't believe that there was a need for a violent, as, they, as I believe the terminology was, a violent uh, uh, act such as the crucifixion. And that was simply something that was created by the early church, uh, the story of it, maybe not the act of it. Um, and so, I, again, it's I'm so I've, I've I've come across this theological track for a number of times, even in funerals, uh, that I just don't know enough about it to to want to speak as a, sure. one who has really authority on it. But again, it's nothing particularly new when we deny. Um, Folks have been denying the death resurrection of Jesus for years. The death resurrection of Jesus is based upon the premise, though, of a broken relationship with God and the need to restore that. So um, I, I like this. I like the clarity of this here in the sense where it talks about the standards of God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, many times, though, when we define sin, we, we think of sin as acts of sin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there's a second 
dimension to that, which actually I think is in the number one slot. I think it's the nature of sin that right. leads to the acts of sin. Right. So right. in that broken relationship is the nature of sin. Right. Right. So. Right. Um, and and that's a much bigger um, overarching thing than the individual acts of sin. Mm-hmm. So all of us, no matter how perfectly we live our life, uh, live in the nature of sin. So I was teaching at licensing school probably two or three years ago. Um, folks who'd been in the church, most of them had been in the church all their life, had been lay speakers before. And this particular class just did not have – they were just utterly amazed uh, when I began to talk about original sin. Really? Yeah, it just it just kind of caught me almost off guard in the questions about that. Um, uh, again, I, I made the assumption that we all had an understanding. I mean, if if I would have asked them, "Do you believe in Adam and Eve?" I think they would have said yes. Can you explain original sin to me, or that breaking of that relationship? It probably would have had something along the words of "They ate the apple," mm-hmm. rather than an understanding of disobedience. Yeah. So, I, I don't know, it's just interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other uh, things I talked about um, in the sermon yesterday, and then, uh, but didn't get to really talk a lot about that, it, and I looked, uh, did some research last night. Um, the benefit of guilt. Um, mm. We would um, often say that guilt is a terrible thing. Um, but guilt has a, a benefit, and, and somebody said, I think it was uh, Chip Dodd, um, I read some, some articles by him, and uh, it talks about, would you want a roommate that never felt guilt? Uh, because then they, it's kind of like a sociopath, a sociopath does not feel guilt, um, and therefore there's no need to, uh, to follow any societal laws or norms. Um, and and guilt can be detrimental when we're taking on the guilt that isn't ours. But when we experience um, a sense of, I should not have done that, um, then we have um, an opportunity to repent and, and to seek forgiveness. Um, as I was looking at this, one of the one of the authors somewhere along that I was reading talked about, um, marital relationships and and how um, uh, if if a spouse feels guilty about someone something that they have done in the relationship, the other spouse um, feels a little better about it. Okay, they're sorry, they're repentative, they're repentant. Um, guilt leads to that most of the time, and I mean that's the intention. I think that it leads to that. Um, or there are times that people just live with the guilt and they never repent. But that helps us. It's kind of a, a um, something within us that says something is not balanced, something is not right, and we can't make that right, but God can. And so it's, it's kind of a powerful thing. The problem is when we feel guilt over things that we did not do and cannot um, um, cannot seek uh, forgiveness for because we we didn't have anything to do with those. Um, one of the one of those um, uh, Dodd's um, 
brothers wrote this uh, statement, and I, I copied it down. I thought it was guilt, good. Guilt grows out of a healthy shame. Yeah. And healthy shame allows me to acknowledge neediness and experience humility and identify limitations, admit to mistakes, weep in sadness. Guilt allows me to wish for better and to grow in empathy and conscience as a human being. Mm -hmm. It's also one of the dimensions of God's grace. We, we probably slide that under this thought of prevenient grace, grace that goes before, that invites one out of a broken relationship God, with God into a restored relationship with God. So, um, well, you know, guilt is, a, is not a bad thing necessarily. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a healthy thing. Uh, we're not guilty for, uh, uh, for having feelings, uh, uh, but we have to deal somehow with what, at least as we're talking in a relationship with God, to start with what was broken in that relationship. Right. But the same thing happens between husbands and wives or people or brothers and sisters in Christ or whatever that is. Many times that guilt will say to us, did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? What do we need to do to restore this? Right. And at that point in time, it's a healthy thing. Absolutely it is. Um, if it leads us to repentance and to reconciliation, that's a healthy thing. If we just bury it and, and uh, live with the guilt for the rest of our lives, that is not that's not healthy. You we made a statement yesterday morning, and of course, it triggered all kinds of thoughts and stories in my mind. Um, but you were talking about how we, um, when we are guilty or when we've done something we should not have done, we know that we should not have done it. How oftentimes we try to either hide from God simply by not being present, or we use other strategies. I remember a brother in my first church. He, um, he had a gambling addiction. He lost his grocery store. He owned a grocery store and lost it. Man. And he had a double mortgage on his house from gambling. Mm. And in the midst of that, he found Jesus. Um, there was a season, and, and once you're, that, that addiction is there, you have to really put yourself in places not to get drawn back into it. Mm -hmm. And I remember he... Uh, I went down to his house just to visit him. He was not only somebody who attended the church, we had become friends. And um, he pulled out an old book, discipleship book, that we had used probably four or five years ago. Out of the clear blue that night, we were sitting in his living room and just began to go back through this and talk about those things. And I finally looked at him and I said, are you okay? And he looked at me. I said, is there something wrong? Because this pattern had popped up once or twice before. He had went from the big-time gambling to the uh, – he'd buy stuff at the auction on Thursday night and try to turn a profit on it on Saturday morning at the uh, Amish sale. Uh, oh, so the American capitalism version of gambling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, which, you know, I, I didn't see it for anybody else as a big deal. But for him, big he loved the thrill of making 50 cents on something he had bought the night before. He worked in a grocery store, and two doors down, this, it was in one of these mall areas, yeah. was a coin shop. And he started going out of his interest for coins, which, you know, started going to the coin shop 
buying some coins and trying to sell them. And then later I found out there was a poker game in the back room of the coin shop. And so we talked about this for quite a while. His guilt drove him uh, to miss several Sundays. His guilt drove him to want to direct a conversation because he was afraid he was going to talk to me about it. And he knew I would (laughs) be honest with him about it. But that guilt was good in the sense that we began to pray about what the next step would be for him to get set free from this and didn't have a clue what it would be. Three weeks later, he was transferred from that store on the east side of Decatur to the store on the west side of Decatur where it was a standalone store Uh, all by itself. But guilt did that. Yeah. And guilt saved him from going back down, because I think he was sliding pretty fast down that slippery slope once again right. of gambling. And so guilt does strange things to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, for believers, I think if we would embrace it faster, uh, if we would embrace it and say, help me, Holy Spirit, if we would uh, be willing to, uh, to be put under that scrutiny, that refining fire illustration, mm-hmm. um, um, I think it... Uh, I think it's just one of the one of the ways that God is, God tries to help deliver us Absolutely. from whatever we're in bondage to. Yeah, yeah. And how many times have people um, uh, tried to um, cover up that guilt by saying it's somebody else's fault? Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm doing this because uh, this is what my parents taught me to do, or this is what. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I had to do it, it, obviously not had to but um and then and then look at what Adam and Eve did what what guilt caused them to do was to hide um and I find it tragic when people are going through a difficult time that they hide from the church they just leave um um and, and nobody in the church knows what's happening you know um mm-hmm. we may as pastors we may not but they can't stand to be in the presence of God. I think one of the one of the most challenging thing as pastors or spiritual leaders in a church, whatever your role is, is to be able to uh, share truth without condemning somebody right. else or without driving somebody deeper right. uh, in uh, into that measure of uh, constraining, controlling guilt kinds of things. Um, I've always found that to be difficult. Uh, Jesus had the per- when he when he interceded between those who were about to stone the woman. Yeah. Um, he um, he demonstrated what great 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 grace was about in that moment in time. I'm still searching to have his eyes. Yeah. Uh, so I can look into those folks' eyes, other people's eyes. Because that woman was guilty of sin. I oh. mean, obviously, she was not. She didn't deserve to mm-hmm. uh, to be forgiven. However, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I just I just wonder um, at what point we have um, have taught ourselves to ignore that guilt, mm-hmm. have taught ourselves to cover that up so that we don't have to look at our own sin. And then I also wonder how we as brothers and sisters in Christ help each other through that. Um, not as you were saying, not by condemning them and telling them they're t- terrible, awful people, but saying, "Okay, let's let's walk through this together. Um, you don't need to be staying in that." Um, that that's the difference between accountability and judgment. Mm-hmm. 
We don't need more judgment. We need accountability, loving accountability. I don't know how much more time we got, but there's a couple other rabbit trails here I was interested in. One of the rabbit trails. We have time for rabbits. There's always time for rabbits. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) One of the rabbit trails I wanted to chase for just a moment. Well, there was two of them. One was talking about um, um, uh, the three functions of guilt. Um, And I had not come across these delineated this way, and I really like this. But uh, guilt usually serves three main functions. Number one, it's to maintain relationships. Mm-hmm. Number two, it's to exert influence. And number three, it's to redistribute emotional stress. Now, I think we could probably take off on that for a while and just chew on those. Uh, guilt, I think one of the things it does, it realigns or it shifts authority and power. So if it's in a relationship with God, it helps to reshift our surrender back to Him, knowing that He is God, period. Sometimes in relationships with other people, in a positive way, the guilt can help restore abusive relationships. But it can also be used to exert influence such that uh, you've made this mistake and now you're going to pay for it. For the rest of our marriage. You know, some people do yeah. that. You're going to pay forever yeah. for this. So um, it, um, I, it, I, it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, um, I, I loved this. This was um, from a, an L.A. Times article, um, and it talked about a woman who um, had, her husband had been in a, uh, uh, a pretty high-powered job, and uh, he would come home late for dinner. And if, she, if he were late, she just wouldn't serve him dinner. And that was uh, her punishment um, and to try to make him feel guilty. Well, uh, down the road, she became that executive, and she realized how hard it was to come home to dinner, uh, to, to be home on time. And uh, so she realized guilt showed her how wrong she had been toward her husband and also how much she wanted to be home with him at night rather than continuing to work. So I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, analogy there. I thought it was fascinating that one survey had said that the most, let's see how I say this right, uh, the most guilt uh, is fueled by lack of of maintaining good, healthy family relationships. In other words, of all the other guilt, whether it's sexual, whether it's lying, whether it's seen, the one that that, uh, seems to rank at the top of the list is I don't spend enough time with my family. And that guilt, and I've talked to, I don't know how many older pastors Mm -hmm. that have said, and I've said to them, what's the one thing as you've lived these years that you would do different? And to a to a T, every one of them said, if I was to do something different, I would spend more time with my family because the church has survived 2,000 years, <laughs> and it would have survived if I'd have done something different with what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Enough rabbit trails, or do you have more? Oh, I'm, I'm good with rabbit trails right now. Okay, I'm, okay. You know, okay. I am. Okay. Just kind so. of interesting topics, mm-hmm. sin and guilt. Yeah, oh, maybe I'll merge the two of those merge, there. Merge, please. Um, so we talk about original sin. We probably need to define that just 
for for a minute, and then I'd like to maybe uh, take it in the direction of how uh, guilt and original sin go together, don't go together, because we have this thing, at least in contemporary American culture, we talk about, um, it's cutely labeled, uh, you know, Catholic guilt, but it really stretches out far outside of Roman Catholicism. Well, I would where hope you, so, yeah. <laughs> where you're, where you're, well, no, where you're walking around with this perpetual sense mm-hmm. of dread and foreboding, and you're always doing something wrong, and yeah. how does that tie into, or not tie into, the concept of original sin. Yeah. Let's okay. begin. Let's go. <laughs> uh, I think it, um, I, I, I think original sin has become a whipping point uh, for a lot of other things. Uh, it's really simply about a broken relationship and disobedience. Um, and that we're born into that. We don't, um, you know, people will say, um, well, that, that baby hasn't done anything wrong. How could that baby be? Look at how cute that little baby is. Mm-hmm. That baby isn't sinful. Mm-hmm. Well, we're born with it. We are born into a broken relationship with God. Um, and that is, you talked about the big picture sin, and then you talked about sins. Um, so we're talking about the big picture sin. Um, our broken relationship with God, and, and we're born into that. That's that's original sin. Um, How is that different than what we are all familiar with, the acts of sin? Uh, because I think those get lumped together. They do. They do. And so that is why a lot of people have difficulties trying to figure out what the difference is, because we're using the same name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but these children who are... Mm-hmm you know, born, have no, seemingly have no will of their own, how can they commit acts of disobedience, rebellion, or missing marks that they have no, uh, <laughs> you mean what they the have, mark no, is? Yeah. have no will for, right? So right. maybe a little bit more explanation about the, the differences there or the nuances, perhaps. I kind of wish we that. had, and we probably do in the English language, a different word for sin, meaning original sin, and sins, meaning um, intentionally missing the mark. Um, sin is that broken relationship that began in the garden um, when um, began in the garden, and then began because of the garden. Right, 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 right. Um, um, and so that is something that all of us are born into, and therefore all of us need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Um, um, I mean, we could live a quote-unquote, well, we can't, but let's say there's somebody that could live a quote-unquote perfect life and never have individual sins, and I'll talk about that in a minute. We still are born into original sin. We still are are the um, um, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Adam and Eve. I mean, we that's the relationship we have. Um, God has created us, and we are beautiful, wonderful people, wonderfully made and fearfully and wonderfully made into original sin because of uh, because of that. Um, sins um, are um, the 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 individual, well, individual and corporate, and I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the the things that we do wrong, the things that we explained earlier in terms of those three categories of of sin, missing the mark, um, 
um, rebellion, those kinds of things. Um, and, and those are things that we as individual individuals can confess and ask for forgiveness about. Then that's individual sin. And there's corporate sin. Um, slavery is corporate, was corporate slin, slin, sin. Um, um, uh, child trafficking is corporate sin. Even though I don't do that personally, how am I participating in that? Um, and what do I need to know so that I'm not participating, not supporting those that do? Um, I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, um, look at the way that women are treated. Look at the way men are treated now. I kind of think it's 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 swung back so far that all men are evil because of what uh, some men have done to women. Um, and now I already forgot the question because I've kind of gone off onto the, a different rabbit trail. Twil- did I did I do it or I don't remember what the question is. <laughs> Well, coming back to original sin for a moment, I um, this is this is um, just uh, my uh, convoluted theological meanderings through church and theologies over a number of years. I think there's a lot of grace given to children by God, and um, I, I know it's not in the Scripture, but I think there comes an age of accountability. That probably comes from the time I spent in the Baptist church on Sunday nights. Um, well, we talked about that in the Methodist church I, way back when. Uh, I just um, – uh, the original sin were broken into, and, I, and I'm not – I don't explain that through acts necessarily. I explain it through a broken relationship right. with God. That's right. Uh, we seem to have um, – and I don't know whether it followed the Reformation where it began to build steam or whether it uh, really began just here in Western – uh, Christianity, but we seem to have a checklist of things, mm-hmm. um, and that checklist seems to be like hitting a moving target of acceptable sins and non-acceptable sins. Um, so it's it's a little harder to define uh, the nature of sin, first of all, just because some would say we're born with a bent towards good, others would say we're born with a bent towards evil. Um, and, and I guess I'm someplace in between that. We're just born with a, a broken relationship with God unless we find something to restore it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't care what age you are. Um, and so that original breaking, that original disobedience, it goes back to when I say that sin always keeps you longer you want to stay, takes you further than you plan to go. And this is what my interpretation is here. Number three, sin always affects the people around you. And certainly that broken relationship with God, with Adam and Eve, led to um, they didn't commit the acts between Cain and Abel, but it led to that. It affected their children and the generations following that. Um, I don't I don't know if that helps or not, but it... Uh, Do you have a... An Isaac um, definition of original sin? No, no, um, no. I mean, it's a. Uh, this is a very. Uh, it's got a lot of baggage it with it throughout the history of the church, um, and uh, I'm not quite sure that any generation has found a good way to speak about it. 
Um, I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, with any kind of, with any kind of theology that wants to put things in categories and systems, we try to read an awful lot into that text of Genesis about how we are the way that we are. Um, and sometimes, and I, I think this is very appropriate with the, with the category mm-hmm. of original sin, because that's what it is, it's a mm-hmm. category. Um, I think we read too much into mm-hmm. that text. Okay. And um, I, think we're, I think we're expecting some answers from that text that that text is not asking that question. Mm, interesting. And um, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, we might miss what's there, um, or we might not. But, yeah. Um, but often this this is one of those very uh, difficult and complex questions that um, a lot of people ask on their way out and not on their way in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're asking that question, there's plenty of room for maneuverability past anything that you have heard or will hear or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not... Um, this is one of those things that the church has slid all over the place on it <laughs> through, yeah, yeah. through 20 centuries. And so um, if you're sitting there scratching your head going, that doesn't make any sense, you are certainly not alone right? <laughs> um, in history. And uh, it's, it's one of those things that I think is it, – it's hard to – it's hard to talk about it without being, without making it a complete in or out issue right away in your own, you know, in your own internal dialogue and externally as well. And that's, you know, part of the problem I think today in terms of just culture in general, but, Mm -hmm. um, but certainly in the church, this has always been an issue that's certainly hasn't united people. It's always kind of divided, Mm -hmm. (laughs) divided the, the group a little bit more. Um, but I think, you know, this text and some of this discussion around there has certainly hit on some of the the salient points mm-hmm. about it, about why it's important to uh, to speak about it, to continue to explore it. Um, it's not something that's uh, not um, beneficial and helpful to talk about in mm-hmm. the 21st century. So, you know, I know some people just want to toss that out altogether, and I think that's a bad a bad thing. I think you need to keep exploring that and will it change and kind of, will the words that we use to uh, narrow it down and try to understand it better change? Certainly they, they will. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a tricky one. It is. Well, and that, <laughs> mm-hmm. Isaac, it takes me back to, um, um, I talked yesterday about uh, the word of God um, versus the words in scripture, the words of God, and I really should have said the words in scripture. And sometimes we um, uh, we fight over um, the words and don't back up far enough to see the word. Um, does that make sense? Um, um, we nitpick over the interpretation rather than backing up and trying to see the bigger picture. Yeah, and I would say the other way around, too, yeah. that often we come with with a very specific kind of understanding in our own heads, yes. and boy, it's really it's really funny when that text confirms that, yes, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I absolutely. Mean, I mean, it's the Christian mm-hmm. version of confirmation bias, which, yeah. Um, yeah. which happens all the time. Absolutely. Um, 
and the problem is is that sometimes it's right and sometimes it's not right. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, from a from an experiential, from a historic, like all of these things, you're you know, a blind pig's going to find a turnip every once in a while, right? Yeah. So you know, it's that kind. Of, it's that kind yeah. of thing where um, you know your success is going to vary, but you will be successful from time to time. You will find things that work. Absolutely. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's consistent or that it will work the next time or that yeah. it's helpful in all situations at all times in all places. That's right. Um, that's right. So that's right. And yeah. we'll be getting more into that in the next few weeks um, because I've got a scripture coming in a the, few weeks. Part of part of the uh, licensing school uh, that I uh, deal with is uh, um, Wesley's quadrilateral. I was just going to say that. And yeah. the interpretation and. Um, there's been a long season where Christians use Scripture as primary. Uh, or it's only. Or only. And there are other seasons where, and I'm wondering if we're not into a season now where reason, which I would equate reason and science, they don't, not tight brothers, but in, in what, we're, what we're dealing with, if that has not moved up the ladder, and uh, then we're looking at Scripture through reason. But we could go down that road. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm in a go rabbit trail some, mode this morning. So yeah, we need to get down that road at some point, but not today. Nope. Because music, I hear music. That music's been playing for quite a while. So uh, <laughs> we'll have to wrap up. We do thank you uh, for listening today, though. If you have questions or you want to contribute to uh, the discussion, find us on Facebook or uh, email, website, wherever uh, wherever you are on the internet. Chances are we've been there at some time. So you can find us there. And next week we'll be back. Uh, with a deeper dive uh, into, I had it and then I lost Randy, it. This where is are you happening. Going next week? This is happening. Going with the Gospel of Mark. Okay. That's right. We're going to talk about mustard seeds and the kingdom of God. That's awesome. Right. And I'm hearing. I've heard. I, I guess how to pull this up. Thanks. I've heard there could be a farmer present next Sunday morning to help us understand mustard seeds. Awesome. Okay. Exciting. All right. All right. Until then, grace and peace.